Hello and welcome to The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav, back in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the end bringer, Shane Beeps. I'm big, I'm tentacly, I can tap down opposing creatures, good to see you. Sir, you even draw cards. Whoa, no one told me that. Sir, do you know how many cards you're drawing tonight? No, honestly. Are you, am I being detained? <laughs> also with us here in Chicago, the reality smasher, Dave Harburger. I tell you what, team dive down. Some people's realities were smashed today, right? Oh my goodness. It's B&R Monday, everybody. Last but not least, it's the great creator, Zach. Callhan. I'm looking at my sideboard, but just for fun. I'm just looking to see what I have in my sideboard, and it's just for fun. It's a thought exercise. I'm allowed to check this at any time. I'm allowed. I don't have to tell you I'm doing it. I get to do it. (laughs) (laughs) On this week's episode, we break down the latest banned and restricted announcement and take a peek at the results from GP Vegas. Then we visit the Blind Eternities in our dive down on Eldrazi Tron. We'll be skipping wind down this episode due to time constraints, because we got a loaded episode planned for you all. But let's kick things off with some housekeeping. Thanks to Sam F. and Calvin B. for joining our Patreon, and thank you to Odin E. and Rick V. for moving their support up a tier. We truly could not do this podcast without the support of the Patreon, and we appreciate it more than we can say. Thank you so much for being a part of the Dive Down Nation. That is not a lie. Um, I I honestly don't think we could sustain this podcast without the Patreon. Also, thanks to Sam Chozo for the incredible review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for all the kind words and the generous feedback. I've written less return papers than I think (laughs) Sam wrote about our podcast. I think it speaks more poorly of you than anything. Well, I mean, that's fair. (laughs) I think he set that in double space and in 12-point courier, so it's really just taking up a lot of room. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it was MLA sided, so hey. We're also happy to confirm that Zach will be providing color commentary on the Modern Streamers League on September 4th. We apologize for any confusion, but we didn't get the news about the delay in the Streamers League until after we had recorded the episode. So to reiterate, catch Zach, the Warden Colhan, doing commentary on the Modern Streamers League on September 4th at 7 p.m. Central at twitch.tv slash league. Also check out the link in the show notes. Yeah, I'm super excited to be talking about Modern. I have been playing a lot of Modern lately and not actually discussing it in person. So I'm very, very excited to get out there and share my opinions with people and just have a lot of fun. It's a really good place to talk and everyone that's playing there is really skilled. It's really interesting. Yeah, I'm super hyped to see the decks that people come out with after the BNR. And 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 the unbe, so it's going to be awesome to see these you know really good players bring their a game and bring some new tech to the table. Yeah, b r u b. It's almost magic colors at this point. We need restricted with a w and uh, granted with green. That's five copies. All right, with all that out of the way, let's jump over to Shane, who's not at the news desk. He's sitting at a circular table. Yeah, who's with me? <laughs> I want I want to paint a picture here. All of us. No, we're not all in the same room again with crazy <laughs> audio quality. It's a virtual circular table. If you could have dinner with two dead cards, 
What two mm-hmm, dead cards mm-hmm, would you choose mm-hmm. to have dinner with? Get taxi and probe. <laughs> <laughs> two copies of get probe. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to start with the BNR announcement today in the breakdown. So to no one's surprise at all, probably um, Ian Duke and the team put the last nail in the coffin and banned Hogak. So you can rejoice a little bit. Probably we get to play magic again without you know ruining or stressing our sideboards with play sets of Leyline of the Void. But we have a stunning twist, and R&D has also decided to ban Faithless Looting and unbanned Stoneforge Mystic. So this is, this is big news. This is a big change. Dun, dun, dun. Ah! My, so I was watching a like 30-minute video about someone recreating that like deep dish, deep fried pizza quesadilla thing and completely missed the the bnr when it came out and so i come back into the slack and i see like two pages of notes about stuff that has been banned and i was like you know 20 minutes behind the time just being like oh god no no not like this yeah it was a pretty wild and stressful morning i think for some of us more than others you know some of us play faithless looting decks and have almost kind of staked their competitive success on them and others play mono red prison but wait <laughs> some of us hmm. you mean uh, you mean you mean stan primarily yes i'm referring to stan in the third person yeah well, i mean there's a there's two hosts of the show right there's me and stan so the competitive looting player and special and the prison player. yeah featuring the, the other two of us are just are just other voices in your head yeah <laughs> oh wow <laughs> Oh, usually yikes. the voices don't acknowledge themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or collaborate with me on multiple projects, but I guess we can cross that bridge later. By talking talking to the voices in my head is the only way I get any projects done. Oh. <laughs> so I want to briefly, very briefly, um, talk about, I'm not going to hit every note that Watsi gave on how, why they decided to ban looting right now. But um, one of the main things they said was that looting was considered the, quote, key card enabling the majority of the graveyard decks that had been successful over the past year. And they said that almost all the winning decks over the past year, the most winning decks had been looting decks. They went all the way back to Hollow One, Izzet Phoenix, Dredge, Bridgevine, and Hogak post-Bridge Van. And also they mentioned that looting kind of restricted their card design space. So if they wanted to do things that worked with the graveyard, discarding, casting efficient spells from the graveyard, they wanted to not have to worry about looting, enabling these things so easily. That is almost verbatim the reason they gave for birthing pod, not the graveyard part, obviously, but that restricting design space part and that when you design cards that are going to modern in the future, you have to keep in mind this card and maybe to a certain level, that's okay. And that maybe a pushed mythic gets toned down. But if anything involves the graveyard and you have to think about faithless looting, I understand where that might be frustrating as a designer. Totally agreed. I just am mostly annoyed that it felt like two announcements ago yeah yeah, two bnrs ago yeah like may that looting was off of their radar as a target on its own so much so that you know i i you know i feel a little bit like a fantasy football kind of analyst right now where on one episode i said it something's going to happen and then the next episode i said something was not going to happen and i don't want to sound like i'm kind of trying to have it both ways but i maybe people remember probably don't that going into grand into MC London, I was actually starting to think that Faithless Looting was going to be banned and had mentioned that I that I thought it was going to be banned eventually anyway. And so I was starting to get a little worried from that aspect. And then that announcement came out and said, essentially, 
don't need to worry about it. It's not really a target. Carry on with with other stuff. And um, that's it's just the reversal mostly that I think annoys me when it really comes down to it. Around that same time period, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm mistaken, everybody who listens to this podcast will surely email me directly, that I think um, Aaron Forsyth was talking about on Twitter how they think the prevalence of some very good white decks was preventing them from unbanning Stormforge Mystic. So this is the not the issue, but the problem with a once every three months communication on issues like this, in that we don't get to see their thought process for how things develop over these months. And we can speculate, you know, we have an entire podcast about this. But it's hard when you only have these blips to fill in the rest yourself and feel like it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, they even upped it to being essentially once every six weeks now, right? Like it's sort of a pre-format and post-format kind of vibe at this point. I really do think looting is probably too good. I mean, I just want to say that. it's. I feel bad for all the people who have built all these different Faithless Looting decks. I'm one of those people, you know... The first deck that I played that had Faithless Looting in it was um, was Marty Pyromancer a little bit ago, and I started to see how good it was from that deck. And then, of course, is it Phoenix and Hollow One kind of really broke it open in a lot of ways. And then, you know, Dredge was always there and things like that. And um, I, I do think it was too good, but it just feels a little bit like a gut punch still <laughs> in some ways. Oh my gosh. I mean, I feel like this was a total one-two punch to me. And I think... I mean, we're going to give this a little bit of chat here. I think, honestly, next week, perhaps, we could probably come back with, like, just, you know, what are people saying in this first week? What are we seeing in this first week? How are we feeling? What are our plans? I think it'd actually be a pretty cool thing for us to talk about as soon as possible. But right now, I think we should just have a quick little roundtable, maybe say how we're feeling, what what our thoughts are about this, and then we can leave it until we have time to really digest it and and take our time with the news. Um, I'm going to volunteer to go first, guys. <laughs> Brave warrior. <laughs> I, I'm distressed but hopeful, okay? The, the the usual, my usual point of being is just, you know, I'm distressed but hopeful. So I wasn't really anticipating the loss of looting and the gain of Stoneforge to the format. And that was really, like I said, like a one-two punch that kind of shook me, especially right away. Because I was like, oh man, does every white-based creature deck I play going to need me to pick up a place out of these because i really felt like in a between a rock and a hard space where it's like okay if stoneforge does get unbanned am i going to drop like 200 bucks on some stoneforges and like the stoneforge package just in case and otherwise it's just sort of sitting in my trade binder um and then after the fact you know we're talking like what 500 bucks probably for this kind of package and you know but the more i thought about it you know, the, the deck styles that I'm hoping to play soon, like five colored humans, I just finished it literally today. Like the last two envelopes arrived in the mail. It's um, I'm hyped. You know, you called this, you called this when we were doing our five colored humans deck dive that I, this would be the next deck, next deck I finish. Uh, what I'm really hoping though, is that uh, Paulo Vidor's thoughts on Stoneforge Mystic aren't really accurate. And he said this on pro points a few months ago that Stoneforge is either too good or too bad for the format, right? And too good just hurts the format again if it gets rebanned. Too bad, just kind of disappointing for me at least. I'm hoping there's some kind of middle ground. What do you guys think? Let's before we move on to like looting again, what do you think about Stoneforge? I'm curious why too bad is an issue. Because the whole thing is they're unbanning it because they think it's safe. So if it's too bad, then they were correct to unban it, right? That it's not even good enough. So why worry about the space on the ban list? Or are you more concerned that that means the format's not healthy if it's not good enough? 
Do you think a healthy format is a good Stormforge Mystic? I think it's more about the risk is not worth it, right? Mm, to mm-hmm, okay. to because there's no middle ground is what P, is what PV said was saying anyway. I'm not sure I agree with that, but um, that that's what the problem is is that trying to there's no upside in making the decision to unban it yeah failure to see the middle ground is i think a dilemma that magic players fall into constantly you know everything is either busted or unplayable yeah and as we talked about if you think about it the math episode last week the difference between busted and unplayable is like the difference between 48 percent and 58 percent consistency <laughs> you know what i mean so it's like it's a tiny amount of difference also i'd like to note that only sith the deal and absolutes stand for what it's worth <laughs> I mean, to get back to your question a little bit, Zach, I think that it's just disappointment, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. more or less. And, and that's I think Dave gets probably to the root of that, which is it's disappointing that it took this long for this decision to get made. And maybe the power level of modern has passed it up a little bit. But that remains to be seen. You know, I saw people testing it literally, like immediately. Oh, yeah. Today, actively. There were streamers, like, because it's on Moto already, and streamers were jamming it, like, you know, eight-hour-long sessions. Because they were so popular, why stop? But that's, I mean, in my mind, I'm really hopeful about this. I guess you said hopeful too, but I'm excited a little bit about Stormforge Mystic, even though I do not have them. I do have a batter skull in us and a sword of fire and ice, though. I guess that's a good starting point for the package. But, um, the I'm I'm excited for what that's going to lead to possibility wise, and honestly, I'm I'm excited, you know for what's going to happen in a post-looting world as well, just because I feel like we've gotten really kind of used to having that tool around. So um, I think in general, I, I, I'm excited about what's going to happen over the next few weeks, but it's still, I'm still worried about, yeah, the cards I'm going to have to buy to keep up. Yeah, I think I have a similar concern, you know, to answer Shane's question about how we feel about Stoneforge first. I think about what happened when Jace the Mind Sculptor and Bloodbraid got unbanned. And what really changed then, I think, in retrospect, was that you would buy those cards, and those cards were kind of just like the thing you would buy to keep up. And what Stoneforge makes, I think, a little bit more complicated is that you don't play Stoneforge by itself. It's part of a package. And likewise with Jace, that card was reprinted at the time. It was literally in print when it was unbanned. And Stoneforge, like as far as we know today, and Batterskull and the Swords are not in print. So I think you're going to have like this issue of perhaps haves and halves nots or maybe worry about people like having to spend a lot of money to keep up with the format. And when cards aren't in print, I think that just makes the situation a little bit more complicated, especially for cards that are already quite expensive. Yeah, I hear and totally agree with that, that I think that it's unfortunate because for Stoneforge, there's, you know, Batterskull, sure, and Swords, sure, but what Swords? So it's going to lead to a rise in a lot of equipment just because people are trying things. So that's unfortunate. I do think, though, that I personally think that the card's probably going to be quote-unquote very good, but I don't think you just put it in any white deck. So I think there's going to be a period like there was with Bloodbraid Elf where it was like a $12 card where it's just used in every deck that can run it and just trying to figure out where it fits. So I think eventually, I hope and do think that it will settle down to where there's, yeah, these decks now run the Stoneforge package and in these decks it wasn't quite good enough. Or these decks, like, I don't think it's going to make a bunch of fringe archetypes all of a sudden very competitive because of six or eight new cards they get. I think it's going to make a few other decks above, but I don't think it's going to push something from tier three to tier one, so to speak. For reference on price, by the way, it spiked from $36 to $76 on Goldfish today. Cool, not a big deal. Not at all, right? I would love to see 
like a white base taxes deck become less fringy? Oh, I, I think it'll help boost the decks up, definitely. And I would like to see more decks be playable. But I don't think it's going to make a fringe deck oppressive. Maybe it'll make it more able to 4 your LGS, which is something that we support, I think, inherently at this podcast. Oh, yeah. 4 your LGS by any means necessary as long as you're not cheating. Absolutely. So until next week, everybody, get out there and 4 your LGS. What are you guys thinking about the very near future. Like if you were going to go to your LGS, you know, this week, next week, what are you taking with you? How are you changing your decks? So I don't think we can really answer this question until we kind of address faithless looting, because I personally think the faithless looting ban is going to be somewhat more impactful in the near term on the format. So to your point, I mean, we're just not going to see like three or four decks anymore. Like bare minimum, we're not going to see is it Phoenix, I think, at first. We're probably not going to see Mono Red Phoenix ever again. Dredge and Hogak are like pretty crippled. I think there's like a lot of debate whether or not is it Phoenix or Dredge can still like find new tools to compensate for the loss. But I mean, it's going to be, I think, a while and maybe like a few tournaments or a few modern challenges before we start to see like if that's true. And at this point, like I'm tempted to be kind of skeptical that like such an important card to like four decks can be replaced that easily. But at the same time, I feel like if the bridge from below banning taught me one thing is that sometimes adaptation can happen really fast and can potentially even improve a deck and maybe only will require like maybe not one card to fill the hole, but like a slight shift in strategy. Yeah, I, I just want to make a quick point where we could do something like Hollow One become relevant again because the cards like Burning Ikari and Goblin Lore are good there. And obviously it's not a one-to-one, but that deck is a deck that can function easily without this and has other replacements. So we might see like another deck that was good with this just get ahead of the pack because it has other better tools. Or not better tools, but other tools that fill a similar role that other decks maybe wouldn't use for a downside that card has or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the same thing at first, too. And then I was kind of like, oh, but wait, Hollow One was really good with Faithless Looting because... I was once like you. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely where my mind goes as far as Phoenix goes, honestly, is one of the first decks I played with Phoenix, Phoenix was uh, the Hollow Hollow Phoenix version. Makes me wonder a little bit if, if that goes back to being a thing. Um, but that also had Faithless Looting in it because Faithless Looting is really good with Hollow One. <laughs> and so tough to, um, you know tough to be sure but i i definitely think there's a chance for stuff like that to come back to yeah i mean i think that they are going to succeed on their goal of increasing deck building diversity you know that's one of their stated goals they felt that the graveyard was suppressing deck building diversity and so i think that we will see perhaps more diverse decks the problem is is that i think people enjoyed playing the different graveyard themed decks like the the phoenix, the phoenix variants the mono red prowess decks the dredge decks you know people probably enjoyed playing hogak you know they, they probably i mean and people play, enjoy playing like the other like sort of more fringy graveyard decks like we have like you know gristle brand type decks reanimator type decks those are all you know they got their legs cut from under them so i do want to kind of touch back on your question about what we think will happen in the format moving forward Um, Because I think there are some more immediate implications. Like, for starters, I don't think you play Surgical anymore unless you play Thoughtseize. We were starting to see, like, Surgical and Blue-White Control appear in a lot of different strategies. And I feel like that's a card that can kind of revert back to its 
position before Is It Phoenix changed everything with that card specifically? You don't think Counterspell and Field of Ruin are enough for Blue Eye Control to be running Extraction? I just don't think that it has enough payoffs anymore for Blue White to want to run it. Because now the main thing that Blue White's going to want to run Surgical for is like Tron or something like that. If there's no longer graveyard payoffs that you just get value off of, um, I think that that was, a, you know, that was enough to make it great. But at this point, I, I just don't think it's worth it. Now, maybe people have it around as a as a uh, utility piece, like a one-off in the sideboard for stuff like this. But uh, yeah, I don't think it's going to be quite the the hotness that it was before. Who knows? It might even be affordable again. Also, like, remember when we did the blue-white control dive down? Like, a number of us, if not all of us, felt like Surgical was sometimes just the worst card in the deck. I, that was not my opinion. I love that card. I, I thought it was the worst card in the deck. I have it tattooed across my chest and my back, and then it loops down to my lower back, but then right up again to my skull. <laughs> wow, that's a big <laughs> tattoo, man. I, yeah, it was, it was commitment, and none of you made a comment about it yet, so I don't have to think. Does anyone else think that we're cutting all graveyard hate like for the next two or three weeks until there's a new graveyard deck? No, I don't think that. I, I may be going to cut my um, Tormod's Crypt from my side and run Artifact Hate there because I do have a Graph Trigger's Cage as well. But I, that would be just to shave and see if there's more Artifact stuff. But I think you're always going to be running graveyard hate just because there will always be graveyard decks. Maybe they're not as good as they are now, but I think one or two pieces is just the way to be. I feel like the two cards now that I'm most concerned about with regard to the graveyard are Tarmogoyf and Snapcaster Mage, and maybe like something in the Thopter Sword combo. Like, yeah, not not that Goblin. Yeah, Goblin Engineer. But I don't know if those are the type of decks that you need four ley lines for. You know what I mean? Doesn't hurt. Like, I feel like I feel like you don't have to be as all in on graveyard hate as we have been for like a good chunk of this year. I think that's the main thing is that it's just going to be less. I mean, it. You know, I. In, in the deck that we're talking about today, Eldrazi Tron, there were seven pieces of graveyard hate in the 75. There were three relics and four ley lines in the, in the list that I was playing. That's, uh, that's a lot. I, I don't think we're going to be doing that anymore for sure, but I don't think you can cut it all either. Before we move on, I think one thing that's really interesting is that in the chat this morning, while we were talking about this and talking with members of the, the nation, it felt like it was getting pretty high key and like emotional and things like that. And on this particular recording i feel like we've all been pretty subdued and i think there's just kind of this weird analog to shock that is sort of like overtaken all of us in some ways like we're just sort of like i don't know i don't know what's gonna happen i have ideas but i don't know and everybody just seems a little bit kind of like dismayed and exhausted <laughs> i'm overwhelmed with joy but i don't want to cut in anybody's morning time right now so i don't you know we, we can let that freak flag fly later yeah, and I think that the main reason I want to say something about this is that, you know, we're going to take some time and think about this and probably do a whole app on this on this topic next week. What do we think New Modern could look like? New Modern. I thought that's what Arena Modern was supposed to be. <laughs> right. Turns out it was just the banning of Faithless Looting all along. Yeah, I also want to apologize for making a button that said two Phoenix, one Faithless, zero problems about six weeks ago because that did not have much of a shelf life. A lot of problems now <laughs> no, with that. It can be followed up by our new button, which is you get what you get and you like it. Yeah. So really a response to that button in a way. Exactly. I've got a, I've got a Sharpie <laughs> and a pile of buttons. I've got all the power. Maybe that pin will become relevant to vintage or legacy players in the future, Dave. Zach, do you want to talk about this dead format that we saw at GP Vegas, though, before we move on? <sighs> I mean, 
it happened, right? GP Vegas was certainly an event with a lot of high-level competitors at it that was very well organized. It's just unfortunate and that And high-level coverage. Exact, absolutely, not even a question on that. And it's just unfortunate that all this effort for in a format that was sort of like a dead man walking in a way. Like everyone knew Hogak was getting banned. We didn't know the Faithless, of course, but what can you do? And to illustrate sort of just the ubiquitousness and the power of everything was the sheer number of Hogak decks in the top eight, which is Hogak, Crabgak, Hogak with Dredge, Dredgegak, and Hogak again. Okay. Wurza, Eldrazi Tron, Eldrazi Tron. Very diverse meta. Mm-hmm. Powerful interactive decks looking for a meta near you. So yeah, I mean, there's really nothing else to say, right? I mean, no reason to talk about this. Ooh, I mean, two Eldrazi Tron seems noteworthy, maybe. <laughs> Topical. It's the second best deck in Modern right now. Do you think that? It was in Vegas. <laughs> Based off a sample size of one weekend tournament. Of the top eight results, specifically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I will say I'm glad we didn't put together that mono-red Phoenix oh died down for this week. Well, no, that, that was uh, next week on the calendar, which has been was, moved. It has been removed from our content calendar. <laughs> I was thinking the exact same thing, Dave. I was like, thank goodness we didn't put in all this effort and like have like Eldrazi Temple get banned. I went in about two hours before airtime to sort of look at the calendar and clean it up and get some stuff together. I went, oh, I, we can't. No, that's gone now. All right, that's getting moved. Okay, well, he, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. All right, well, goodbye. Goodbye, format. If anything, the top eight, I feel like, was the final nail in the coffin for Hogak. Really demonstrated why it had to go. So, frankly, unless you were playing Hogak and winning for the first time and farming ticks on MTGO... I think a lot of our listeners and a lot of modern players are probably happy to see it go. Bon voyage. Are you guys happy to see it go? Because what you know, you know what we haven't talked about. We talked about Faithless Looting and Stoneforge. We haven't talked about Hogak is also gone. I mean, it's kind of funny that over the past month or so, we've sort of just behaved as if it was there and also wasn't there at the same time. Where we're sort of like, yeah, it was there again. Move on. Let's talk about something else. I mean, we've all just been waiting for a long time for this band to come. And so I think that was kind of like just nice to have something that you expect happen. And then everything went the wrong way after that. It's fun to be right sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. So there you have it, folks. GP Vegas was super fun, but the data we got from it is near worthless. But thank you, CFB, for the killer coverage. Sounded like there's a lot of fun stories from the weekend some unusual stories too but that's vegas for you maybe we'll be there next year who knows (laughs) dive down from nevada we're gonna take a quick break and when we return we are diving into eldrazi tron a deck that did not get affected by the banned and restricted announcement stay with us So the top tier on our Patreon gives people the opportunity to pitch episode topics that they would like us to cover. And this week, we are excited to talk about an idea shared by friend of the show, Buffkips. And Buffkips invited and asked us to do a dive down into Eldrazi Tron. And frankly, we were all pretty happy to try it out. Considering that Etron was one of the best performers at GP Vegas, it's kind of a consistent meta deck that always seems to pop out out of nowhere and you know, you're always going to like be next to someone playing it at a GP or a big modern event. 
and it could easily remain a format staple post-ban, so we thought the timing was perfect to visit the Blind Eternities and cast some colorless, alien monstrosities. At this point, you're saying to yourself, long-time fan, long-time listener, wait, Tron, episode 15, you hacks, you did that already. But no, no, no. We did that because we're consummate professionals. But this deck is different enough to deserve a unique, special dive down. Yeah, I mean, Eldrazi Tron is really just fundamentally different than Mono Green Tron that shares the name, right? And the only reason it shares that name is just to the presence of the Tron lands, I'd say. Yeah, it's it feels very, very different to me. Yeah, so I think the way we're going to start this is we're going to go over, really to say what Eldrazi Tron is, say what it isn't. Even though it has aspects of other decks, it really is a unique deck. So to begin that, it's really not a quote-unquote Tron deck. Yes, it runs four copies of all the Tron lands, Tower, Mine, Power Plant, but it's not looking to achieve Tron the way Mono Green Tron is, i.e. it's not trying to have Tron turn three consistently. It can do that, and that is a good strategy occasionally, but your deck isn't hellbent on doing that. Yeah, it's not turn three Tron or die, basically, like it is with Mono Green Tron. <laughs> was that Benjamin Franklin? <laughs> it was. Patrick Henry, I think, but... Yeah, if you remember our... Uh deck dive into Tron itself, we said, you know, the goal was to make Tron, make Tron, make Tron. And that is not your primary concern at all with playing this deck. Right. I felt like while playing this deck and after having played Mono Green Tron, you know, months ago or whatever, that one of the key differences was the payoffs for the mana. So where Mono Green Tron really almost establishes game winning inevitability as soon as it generates seven mana and casts Ulamog or Ugin, or Karn Liberated, or a Worm Coil Engine, I don't know, maybe an O-Stone, Etron has to wait a little bit longer to win the game and to establish its position than like after it sets up its big mana play. Absolutely. And I think a big reason of that is I personally identify, and it's interesting to see what you guys have to say about this, I identify Rossi Tron as more of a mid-range deck than the other Tron deck in that your turns three and four aren't spent winning the game or doing bombastic plays. Most of the time, this deck can do that, and that's part of the strength, but you're ramping your things, and you're setting up a bigger turn later, where Tron is, you know, ideally getting, Metal Green Tron is ideally getting a huge payoff right away. So things like Mindstone show up here, which typically only showed up in Scred, not that I play that deck anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll get to, again, like you said, what Tron, what Eldrazi Tron is in a little bit, but I, I think one of the interesting things, too, to note between Tron and Eldrazi Tron as the Planeswalker package is also pretty different. They don't have Karn Liberated. They don't have Ugin the Spirit Dragon. It's running Karn the Great Creator and the new Ugin, uh, but we'll talk about those a little bit later. But I think it's, you know, these are, there's a lot of fundamental differences on what makes it not much like Green Tron. It's like if Mono Green Tron existed in the Upside Down, <laughs> it would look like this. <laughs> Similar, but different. I think one of the big things we should note before we move on is what do we what do we really mean by the fact that it, it is not trying to make turn three Tron? And that is the the number of search cards or tutors within the deck or cantrips within the deck even is much, much lower than Monogreen Tron, right? So it's not trying to burn through the deck to get to a certain set, to a certain payoff. Um, it's got different payoffs and so that's that's one fundamental difference there's not as much air in this deck really when you think about it whereas with mono green tron there's a bunch of stuff where you're like maybe late game i accidentally draw a sphere or a star you know and then that's um that's a different thing about this deck for sure so what else isn't it it's also not really just like a turbo chalice deck and that's kind of yeah, I mean, you, you see a place that have Chalice of the Voids and you're like, okay, what is it trying to like quickly lock people out? 
And, you know, in a format where, you know, about half of the top 50 played cards are one CMC, Chalice is awesome to play, right? At least as of today, half of the top 50 cards are one CMC. Who knows what's going to happen post-looting, but... Yeah, but yeah, but Eldrazi Tron doesn't really have any way at all, typically, to ramp out a Chalice on one, on turn one. You're kind of playing it a little bit slower. You know, you're kind of capitalizing on the fact that Eldrazi Tron has a higher mana curve than most decks. Yeah, one of the things that's really interesting about that point, I think, is that, and we'll talk about history in a little bit, but the terror of the Eldrazi Winter colorless Eldrazi decks did run Simeon Spirit Guide. And at this point, you know, if this deck is sort of the the child of, of that deck in some way, it's interesting that that card has evolved out of this deck. Yeah, while playing this one, I kind of felt like Chalice was a card this deck gets to play rather than a card that this deck has to play to exist. Like, it's just another tool in this mid-range package that Zach alluded to rather than something that's all in on getting a ton of value off of Chalice, being able to lock opponents out of doing whatever they want to do. Because, you know, if you're on the draw, I don't think Chalice is as great. In certain games, I would just side it out because I was on the draw. Zach, how much worse do you think it is that you don't get to Chalice for one? I think that it's definitely not quite as good, but it's traded off by the fact that sometimes you can put a Chalice on three or four a little easier, and that, against some decks, is very, very, very big. Interesting. So I don't know if that trade-off is worth it, and like obviously Mono Red Prison is all in on Prison, very fast, lock you up. We'll talk about it more later, but this deck, the Prison feels like more like one of the game plans the deck has and less the main route it's trying to go down. So Chalice on one turn two is never a great feeling, but like we talked about in the math episode, Prison doesn't even do that most of the time. It's a really a rare thing and a, a cool thing that you get to do. So I have one last question that just occurred to me on this as we were talking, and this is a point that I'm going to hit several times when we in this discussion probably, but that is, do you... So Zach, you said that, Tron, that Eldrazi Tron is more like a mid-range deck. So typically a mid-range deck is composed of cheap removal and efficient creatures, right? Kind of equal mix of both. My wonder here is that it's because the removal is so kind of bad in this deck that there aren't that many options available to it. Is Chalice really kind of standing in for quote unquote removal on this deck because there's just no other options? I think yes. So definitely that Chalice is acting as I'm doing this early to stop your early game plays or as in response to your early game plays. But also the creatures in Aldrazi Tron are a little more powerful than typical mid-range creatures. Thought Not Seer is a removal in a sense, if you want to think about it like that. It's exiling a card. They don't get it back. So you are able, it's not exactly, it's not a one-to-one. It's not a lightning bolt. It's not a scred. But the ability to play a card and remove a card from a player's hand is removal in a sense. And the ability for Matter Shaper to replace itself or draw a card, things like that aren't exactly a one-to-one mid-range comparison, maybe the way I made it seem. But the value it generates is mid-range-esque to me. Yeah, Dave, I really, I mean, I agree with Zach, basically with everything he said, <laughs> but I think really to kind of address what you said, this deck can't run Bolt or Push or uh, Path to Exile, so as a result, like, Chalice is just one of the few tools it has for early interaction, and then as Zach said that, like, the creatures here are bigger than mid-range creatures, I think the creatures in Etron just kind of outclass Modern's creature suite in general. You know, with the exception of Primeval Titan and like a few other exceptions, like these bodies tend to be just the biggest bodies on the board in most games that they're in. 
Absolutely. And the reason this deck can't run that spot removal Stan mentioned, aside from mana restrictions, is that you don't get to run Chalice then also. You don't get your suite of one-drop removal and Chalice of the Void, because Chalice of the Void is going on one most of the time. So this deck is opting to not splash and not mess with that one-drop removal in order to focus on the Chalice. All right. And then the last thing that it's not just, it's not just a Karn the Great Creator prison deck. I mean, it's probably the best Karn the Great Creator deck. I don't know. Zach Mono Red Prison wants to know your location. Yeah. yeah, Zach might take some take some umbrage with this, but I mean, what do you think about that, Zach, after playing this and also playing Mono Red Prison a bunch? This was my first time playing a Karn Karn deck, and I feel like I was just so early in that uh learning curve to be able to you know, I was mostly just thinking about what I was supposed to get. I wasn't thinking about what else could I have been doing with Karn in a different deck. Right. Uh, I don't want to denigrate prison because a lot of my on pot identity is now wrapped up in decks like that. But this was the first time I five owed with this deck. Right. And Karn was a big part of that. Like there were times where I'd be like, what am I outs? What am I getting to right here? Oh wait, minus grab ballista play ballista X equals four. I win. Like there were a lot of times where I would think to what my arts outs are and then wait, I can, I can choose one. It's probably one of these. So I don't know if it was because I had more mana. I don't know if I was on a hot streak or whatever it was, but I feel like Karn often was the answer I needed consistently and frequently. Zach, hearing you say this makes me think though, that one of the advantages you had playing this deck is all of your experience with Karn. So for me, having literally no experience with Karn, the great creator, ahead of the research for this dive i would often i think misplay with how i played karn specifically and i know you used to misplay and then you learned from a lot of those mistakes and we kind of like talked about how your thinking with karn specifically has changed over time and you know shane what you said about this maybe being the best karn deck i think is kind of curious because to me i thought karn was plan b and plan a was eldrazi you know what i mean like he's he's kind of hard to ramp into and not only that, he doesn't really win the game on the spot. So we'll talk more about Karn later, but I tell you what, people sure do love to concede to Karn on the spot because <laughs> I wish I lived that lifestyle. Someone made me play it out with a lattice lock and I did it and I won, but I did not enjoy doing it. I mean, Stan, I think I think one thing that's interesting is when you say, you know, was Karn plan B? And for me, I felt like this was a deck that was made of four plan A's that were just kind of all there together. Yeah. What do you see as the plans, Dave? Like, what do you like? So let's talk about what this deck is, right? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like you guys ever get like a box set of a band that you really like. And like I had this one when I was a kid, it was Led Zeppelin's box set it came in a big big box with like a blimp over a crop circle and you open it up and there I'm were sorry four- do you mean a zeppelin are you yes. calling the led zeppelins it's a zeppelin well i mean we're we're writing you know i don't want to repeat the same word over and over it's again you know what i mean it's a band's named after it so anyways so the blimp is over the front of it and you open it up and there's four discs inside of it and when i was a kid that was like the first led zeppelin that i had and so i just listened to what was in the greatest hits collection never really realized that there were all these songs taken from different albums and kind of put together into this other thing and to me it kind of felt a little bit like eldrazi trying to sort of just like the greatest hits of all the colorless cards that are available in modern jammed together into one shell that seems to like mostly work together but also has some awkward tensions within it and so you know if you look at what it has it has great cheap creatures of of the Eldrazi. It gets to play that. It has some mana ramping from Tron. 
and Eldrazi, uh, Eldrazi Temple as well. It has Disruption from Chalice, and it has Karn. It's all the kind of best colorless. Absolutely. So when we said this deck isn't these things, I think what we're saying is it's not explicitly only these things. It's parts of all these things. And something I found with the deck especially is when you draw your opening hand, you have to figure out what plan you're on kind of right then. Like if you're going to go on the child disruption plan into wrapping, you need to figure that out really quickly because the deck can easily flounder. Yeah, that was very much how I felt about it too. Like looking at keep mall decisions in this deck are it's so kind of like you have to look three turns in the future before you can decide with this one. You can't really assess exactly what was in your hand. Was this the first deck dive that none of us had had any previous experience with playing? I've played Bluetron, which is not the same deck, but is similar in that it's a Tron deck that is also other decks. So I was familiar with the premise, and I've also played Karn decks. So I've played decks adjacent to this one, but not specifically this deck. Yeah, not these puzzle pieces of colorless cards in this fashion. No, no, not this Jigsaw, yeah. baby. I mean, and I, in the past, I played the Eldrazi, mono, you know, Thalia Stompy or Mono White Eldrazi and also Eldrazi in Taxes. So I had played decks with Reality Smasher and Thought Not Seer and Matter Shaper sometimes in them, but not this specific build. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, of course, I've had some Mono Green Tron practice. and But yeah, this was, this was a novel experience for me, for sure. How about you, Stan? I have not played Eldrazi ever before. It was my first time casting reality smasher after losing to it several times and it really felt like robert plant um and you know thought not seer i think jimmy page karn the great creator john paul jones um but i have played other big mana decks and other mid-range decks like i played mono green tron i've tried thalia stompy online i've even played amulet titan and jund so like Although none of these decks like are a direct analog, I had some experience with these cards, but it felt like Etron was a process of unlearning everything and kind of figuring out exactly what the plan is for a given hand, as Zach said. And often like we're gonna talk about mulligans later, shipping hands where you just had no plan, like A, B, oh, or yeah. C. The three reality smasher, two waste, one map. So it's, okay, I'm not doing anything until turn four at the earliest. This sounds great. It doesn't sound great. That's sarcasm. <laughs> so before we see kind of how all these puzzle pieces go together, do you want to give us a brief little history lesson on this? And thankfully, it's not anywhere near as long as many other decks we do. No, because this uh, original incarnation of the deck was banned, and then it waited a little bit to emerge from its swampy, ethereal, otherworldly waters. <laughs> We don't know that they have swamps. How do the Eldrazi get into the plane? Do they like come through like holes? Do they like tear open the, the skies and like? That's a good question. I imagined it more like Evangelion, where they're like growing off of the Titans and falling off, but that's probably not actually how it is. I heard that the multiverse was a series of tubes. <laughs> you, you can't just put it out there. It's a series of tubes. <laughs> well, when two hedrons fall in love, they make a little baby called a spawn, a, a scion. So. Class in session, nerdy math class out the window. I don't care about that. I'm going to pass you because it's history class right now. We're talking 2016, year of our Lord. So Oath of the Gatewatch just dropped. Number of Drowsy and Modern, enormous, huge, can't be stopped. But maybe also they're a little good because of a card called Eye of Ugin. Yeah, one of the other most telegraphed bands 
ever was Ibrugan post uh, post Pro Tour Oath of the Gate Watch. I think that people calculated like sometimes Ivugan was worth twelve mana a game or fourteen mana a game. Like you could cheat so much off of it just by doing wild stuff. Right, so it's uh, noteworthy, obviously, that Eye of Ugin is one of those rare lands that does not tap for mana itself. So here is the text of Eye of Ugin. It is a legendary land. Colorless Eldrazi spells you cast cost two general mana, two colorless mana, less to cast. Then it has an activated ability, seven and tap. Search your library for a colorless creature card, reveal it, and put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. So this does not tap for mana, but reducing cost by two can reduce some cards to zero or some cards to one, etc. So the Eldrazi exploded on the scene into modern and were instantly just a very broken, very powerful deck. So obviously this led to the ban of Eye of Ugin, at which point Eldrazi based decks sort of faded back a little bit. It's not that they weren't powerful, quote unquote, it's that they weren't incredibly impressive and they're more of a tier two tier three mid-range fun deck yeah i mean they basically turned into eldrazi and taxes for a long time which was kind of black white plus thalia and uh kind of aether vial was what people went for and even reality smasher kind of came and went out of that deck sometimes it ran it sometimes it didn't and the top of the, the top of the curve was uh thought not and this is kind of when uh, bant eldrazi was also a thing right when they were replacing some of the ramp with like noble hierarchs and just sort of pushing out the and ramping out the large Eldrazi creatures as efficiently as they could. I totally forgot about Bant Eldrazi. That deck was a terror for a while, and I feel like it was the first deck that really made Cavernous Souls spike to like $80 a copy. I think it's worth noting that a lot of these decks we're talking about didn't even run the Tron lands. Like the original OG Eldrazi Winter deck, I don't think that ran Tron. No, not none of them did. This is the first one too. Yeah, you don't need to run Tron lands when your spells sometimes cost two, two less and also tutor up more spells. Oh my god. It's just so good. I think it's so good. It's upsetting to look at. So with the recent printing of very good colorless cards, like, for example, Walking Ballista, there has been a, a more coalescing of the deck around big mana plans, hence the introduction of Urza lands, etc. And especially now with the printing of Karn the Great Creator, Ugin the Ineffable, Blast Zone, we have seen, like Dave said, a greatest hits collection of colorless cards coalesce into this horrifying otherworldly shell. Yeah, kind of like Bonzo's mantra. <laughs> it's a supergroup of modern. Literally, exactly. A supergroup of... So there's the synergy of the Odrazi that's kept intact by Odrazi Temple, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And there's all these other things. So it's not just quote-unquote good stuff, but it's Baby tribal, quote slash also including good stuff. So as we always do with our deck dives, we're going to go into more detail than usual about the cards that we'll bring up. But since many of these cards are a little bit older, they're more well-known, and we want to leave some time for a strategic discussion where you may not read the text of every card in the deck and just the more important or newer ones. So just keep that in mind. But I think that we should probably begin with the mana base, right, y'all? Because I think that's what really gives this deck a lot of its power. So it has, interestingly, multiple forms of cheating and ramping mana because it has the you know Eldrazi Temple and the Urza lands, along with all these other utility lands that have come into the format over the last few years. I feel like colorless lands with upside have been something that they've been sprinkling into you know nearly every set. I feel like we get something that does something cool. Yeah, this is an interesting sort of effect of balancing colored lands, I think. Because if you're trying not to make a red land too strong or a blue land too strong, it's easy to make it colorless, right? So it doesn't make one deck too powerful 
or make one strategy too push or too obvious. So a bunch of these lands come out slowly over a bunch of time, then you have a collection of colorless lands, which are easy to group together. So I'm going to start with probably the most important land in the deck, and that's Aldrazi Temple. So Aldrazi Temple taps for colorless, but it also taps to add two colorless that can only be used to cast colorless Eldrazi spells or activate abilities of colorless Eldrazi. So it's just straight up mana cheating for your Eldrazi creatures and even your sweeper in All is Dust because that's a tribal sorcery spell. And so a uh, quick modern math for you, you're about 9% to see two Eldrazi temples by turn two. So that's for that turn two thought not seer. Exactly. So yeah, it's just it's basically like an always on uh, Urza's power plant or Urza's mine without having to you know have Urza Tron form. So in my experience, Eldrazi Temple was amazing in this deck. I would occasionally fetch for it with map when I needed it, but there are a lot of times where I was able to have a turn three or turn two Thought Not Seer or Reality Smasher. Not turn two Reality Smasher, but quick, efficient Reality Smashers and Thought Not Seers. And this card blew my mind, absolutely blew my mind. I knew it was good from having lost two Eldrazi decks frequently, but actually being able to play it and consistently get off these nonsense plays, I don't think this card is too good, but I think this card in this shell is very much the glue that is holding this Eldrazi menace together. Yeah, I mean, it's even great to drop a turn two matter reshaper, which is like, great, I can attack, draw some extra cards. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really, really powerful. Yeah, it's fun to have a blocker that maybe accelerates you on land. Right, absolutely. I totally agree about Eldrazi Temple. It was interesting because this is a card that I would rather have multiples of in hand than like multiples of the same Tron land. I think that's kind of unique about it, but also really illustrates one of the tension points for the deck is that it's only ramping part of your plan. You know, multiple Eldrazi temples can accelerate your creatures, but it doesn't accelerate your Karns or your Ballista. Right. It's easy to forget that this isn't helping you cast Ugin early, as once I planned a turn around getting Ugin out in turn four, and I thought I just broke Moto because I kept tapping the land, and then I had to literally take a step away and reread the card and go, oh, no, I'm just... I'm very dumb. But Moda's not broken. I can't read. Ugin fought against the Eldrazi. Well, I th- um, he also loves them. So, you know, and we don't need to go into the lore right now. Because my podcast, um, Zach Lore? Zach no, ships Ugin. <laughs> Zach X Ugin featuring... We'll stop. I was going to call it Zorthos. Oh, that's better. I should have just said that. It's called Zorthos. So the other man of package are the Tron lands. And I don't think there's a lot to be said about these. We talked about them in the Tron episode. Everyone has played against Tron lands if they're not playing them themselves. One plus one plus one equals seven. However, as we said earlier, the deck doesn't rely on forming the Urza-Tron combo as the curve is lower than Green Tron and the deck can ramp mana in other ways. So they're really kind of an added value. These are lands the deck gets to play, not necessarily has to play. Well, I guess in this day and age, Etron has to play Urza lands, but you know, historically, that wasn't always the case. So, of course, there's a bunch of other utility lands within this this deck that are kind of pieces from other things, and also just taking advantage of some of the great colorless lands that are available uh, to use. Because it's not a detriment at all that they don't produce colored mana in this deck. So you could have Ghost Quarter, right? I mean, the deck that I played didn't have any, but it's definitely a deck that's on the table if you want to have a little bit of land destruction. Taps for colorless, which I think is one of the things that makes Quarter potentially playable. You know, it allows you to cast your Eldrazi. 
Uh, there's Cavernous Souls, which taps her colorless and also helps you with uh, control deck matchups. Now, this doesn't tend to run a lot of those anymore. It looks, I think the list that I had only had one in it, but still good card to have around. It can also occasionally help you get through chalice triggers. Like I mentioned, you can get chalice up to three or four here. So you can cast your own thought, not seer through a chalice on four. I did it once. It was cool, but it is an important piece of tech because this deck can get those big, I hate cryptic commands so much and I wanted to counter it and I did. That's amazing. I didn't even try to get chalice up that high. That's, that's interesting to hear. Part of my achievement list in magic. Check mark. Uh, the next one of course is blast zone. Um, blast zone, you know, is a, a engineered explosives on a land. It's super useful. And, um, you know, it, with the ability to ramp up to it via the Urza lands that kind of helps you get to whatever number of counters you want on it. And then you can kind of, um, you know, use that as a sweeper or a secondary sweeper or something to help get rid of pesky permanent types that you don't really have removal for, because like I mentioned earlier, uh, Eldrazi Tron doesn't have an option to run really removal that does anything other than kill creatures. And even right. those cards are kind of like pretty medium. So, and then the last one that people, the last couple that people have been using lately are ones that help draw cards, cryptic caves and Seagate wreckage. Uh, cryptic caves. I got to use a lot when I was playing it. And I think it's a really cool card. Basically you get to tap one and sacrifice it to draw a card. If you have five or more lands, which is pretty cool. And then Seagate Wreckage, which is you get to pay two in a colorless, tap it, and draw a card if you have no cards in hand. Literally never got to use this in the 10 matches that I played with it, but um, I, it's it's still a powerful card that uh, needs a home somewhere. Please. There are so many wreckages at adoption centers right now at pounds around your local area. Do what you can. Reach into your heart and adopt one of these. Adopt, don't shop. Can I interest you in a, in a jam day tome? How about a jam day home? <laughs> That's a deep cut, Dave. <laughs> so this deck really only runs one Cryptic Caves and one Seagate Wreckage. And I don't think the deck wants more, but I actually f was really impressed with these two cards, especially. I was really impressed with them. I got to cash in on both of them. And I felt like they made your top deck expedition maps quite a bit better because you have no cards in hand. You top deck a map you get to fetch a cantrip. So I thought these cards were really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, more on Expedition Map in a minute. Um, the other kind of package of lands that you might see that are less seen are Gemstone Caverns. If you want to try to do some turn one chalice shenanigans, scavenger grounds for reusable, reusable fetchable graveyard hate, and buried ruin to bring back an artifact that you really want, kind of a la KCI. And then, of course, the final one, the most boring card ever printed, <laughs> Wastes. Boring? I mean, kind of. It's a basic land that taps for one colorless mana and does nothing else. It's literally probably the least useful card you can ever have printed by definition. But these were huge. <laughs> these were such a huge addition to colorless decks. I mean, they're, they're, they're basic lands that make colorless mana. Yes, absolutely. Well, keep in mind, there wasn't a need for colorless mana before this set came out. So they came out in parallel, but they are super important. I, I'm just, I'm making a little bit of a joke by saying it's the most basic, basic land you can ever have. Yes. I mean, but like what the, the value of these, of course, is they can be searched up in response to a path to exile, to an assassin's trophy, to a field of ruin, to a ghost quarter. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they're important for casting your old drowsy spells through blood moons because they're basic lands. Quick question for the group. 
Was anyone else surprised that this deck wasn't running Prismatic Vistas? Or at least I wasn't running any in the list that I was running. And I think when that card especially was first spoiled, like this was one of the first shells that people thought it would go in as a nice hedge against Blood Moon. I, I don't think it's this shell though, because there's nothing why wouldn't you just run a waste? Yes, it can't exactly. it can't bring anything other than it can't search up anything other than the basic lands. So in the Thalia Stompy deck makes a ton of sense because you can go get a planes or a waste. In this deck, the only target is waste, so why wouldn't you just run a waste? I I agree, and even more so, it's hard to cut the utility lands from the deck. Like we said, we're running only one Seagate and only one of the Cryptic Caves. So it's harder to cut one of those, but also you run Mindstone, which helps you get through Blood Moon in the same way and helps create that colorless mana if you are hated out. And like it would be nice, I guess, occasionally get a waste with that, but you also do run the Expedition map. So you have a bunch of outs to getting your colorless sources if you really do need them that I don't think the even the life loss from this or the issues with creating mana by itself. And also you run so few waste that you're going to run these and at some point not have a waste to fetch, and this isn't going to add any mana. So next, let's move into the Planeswalkers, because it wouldn't be a Tron deck if it didn't run Karn and Ugin. And as we mentioned up top, this deck runs both of those, but not the same Karn and Ugin that Mono Green Tron uses. This ain't your father's Karn and Ugin, or mother's. Primary caregiver. Don't talk to me or my Karn ever again. I want to start with Karn the Great Creator which we've talked about quite a bit, basically ever since it was printed. It was actually one of our sleeves from War of the Spark and clearly designed to see constructed play. That's the easiest sleeve known to man, right? Or woman. To person. Planeswalker. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So Karn costs four colorless mana, legendary Planeswalker Karn, and it has a static ability like all, all the War of the Spark walkers did. Activated abilities of artifacts your opponent's control can't be activated. So essentially it's stony silence on a walker. Comes down with five loyalty. It's got plus one until your next turn. Up to one target non-creature artifact becomes an artifact creature with power and toughness, each equal to its converted mana cost. And then it has a minus two. You may choose an artifact card you own from outside of the game or in exile. Reveal that card put it into your hand. So with regard to modern, when a card refers to entities outside the game, it's either exile or your sideboard. And Karn is typically used to tutor up important sideboard artifacts to stymie the opponent's game plan. So whether it's graveyard hate, sweepers, pithing needle effects, and snaring bridge, even creatures like walking ballista and worm coil engine, there's tons of great colorless options. And of course, once the game is stabilized, you can fetch a Microsynth Lattice to lock the opponent out and usually finish things off basically in a matter of your choosing, though it tends to often be Lattice plus Ensnaring Bridge working in concert. And I often found like once I was casting Karns and trying to figure out what to fetch with them, like A, that was one of the hardest decisions for the deck and figuring out when to get Lattice was like really tricky and a place where I misplayed until I started to learn how important it worked in tandem with Ensnaring Bridge specifically. Not to mention like Lattice without a Karn on the board almost does nothing. What's interesting to me is that Karn the Great Creator is is somewhat uncertain in Greentron right now, but it's 
definitely a fixture of Eldrazi Tron. And I think it's really because the sideboard options of Eldrazi Tron kind of stink and, and you know, kind of stunk before Karn the Great Creator. So it wasn't like wrecking the sideboard. Like when we talked about this card early on, it was how many cards you could add into your sideboard for the package, how, how that impacted your ability to run things like Thrag Tusks and Thought Not Seers. And, you know, right now, things like Leyline of the Void. And so, you know, Eldrazi Tron can only run colorless cards. So in fact, this probably makes the sideboard better because it's tutorable. Mm, I I don't know about better. I do think there still is an opportunity cost because there's always that tug of war you have where you have these one of silver bolts in your sideboard and it's risky to bring them in if you need them because then if you draw a card later, you cannot tutor for them. So I do think you're right in that their sideboard maybe was like looking like 12 out of 15 and it's easy to work with three extra slots plus cutting some. And definitely in even my prison deck, it's hard where I want a Karn package, but I really want to fit an artifact hate and I can't tutor that up. So what piece of the Karn package am I cutting? And there's this constant battle. But in general, it is, it's not free real estate in the sense that if you really do need graveyard hate, it might be worth bringing it in and risking not being able to get it with Karn. We'll talk more about the Karn sideboard wish suite a little later on, but a lot of people seem to think that it either improved already good matchups or made a huge impact on some of the deck's worst matchups. Yeah, good card. Shane, you want to talk about Ugin? You've cast a fair amount of Ugins in your day. I would describe Shane as ineffable. Man, this card, I barely got to cast it in, in the leagues I played, to be honest with you, which was odd. It just didn't show up as much as the other cards. I think Ugin the Ineffable, so it's a 6 CMC colorless card. Colorless spells you cast cost 2 mana less to cast that's a static ability the plus hey, that's his eye that's his eye he's oh, doing his eye i get oh, it oh man you nailed it i didn't even realize so uh the plus one lets you exile the top card of your library face down and also look at it i think it's interesting that's not an option like what happens if you don't look at it like do you get like a warning <laughs> so um but look at this look at it <laughs> Like you, if you don't look like, at like, it, I mean, they could call a judge against you, right? Your opponent. I mean, <laughs> my opponent so, won't look at the card they put face down. They won't even peek at it. You also created two two colorless spirit creature token. Note this is not the card you exiled face down. It's not a morph. It's just a two two spirit creature token. Uh, when that token leaves the battlefield, you put the exiled card into your hand. So it's straight up just nice card advantage while creating a body. Um, Wasn't that the, called manifest? No, but it's explicitly not manifest. I know. That's what I mean. It's explicitly not it, but yeah. that's funny. Um, and then the, neg- the minus three destroys a target permanent. That's one or more colors. Also, its starting loyalty is four. So you can come down, tag a colored permanent of any type, uh, which does not include lands, and it, it sits there with one uh, remaining loyalty for you. This isn't a definite inclusion yet. Uh, it's still kind of being tested, but I, I see it more often than not. And, you know, all your spells are colorless. So it's giving you ramp with the static ability. The plus one gives you that creature, that source of card advantage. The negative three is kind of like typical walker removal, but it's largely better because it removes any colored permanent. What do you guys think about it? I loved it. I was media. Medium on it. (laughs) Oh, I'm with Zach. Yeah, I don't know if two is the correct answer, as sometimes I find myself unable to cast it, but I really loved one. I... I need to put some more thought into this. I wonder if maybe one main one side, depending on your meta, but having the one was really good. And there were times where I was able to chain this into just like being on the back foot, drawing Ugin, and then just being totally on the offensive from there. So I I don't think it's, you know, a four of, I think it's very much like 
a card that helps you turn the tides and not helps you get rid of like a losing game the way the spirit dragon does where they can minus and wipe an entire board but i think the cost reduction part and i think the ability to either create uh defenders to block or remove a creature in the way is very good in this deck but once again one to two is where you probably want to be yeah, I mean, I felt like this is this falls into that same thing I was talking about earlier, where you just need cards that are able to get rid of cards, and maybe a six, you know, a six mana vindicate isn't the vindicate we were looking for, but it's the one that we have, so we're we're going with it. I mean, it it does do a lot of stuff. I very infrequently got to ramp off of it or or manifest. I basically used it as a vindicate. I think it's mostly because I I cast this card so late all the time that I often didn't have any cards left in my hand anymore. So then it was kind of like, I guess I'll plus it or I would play it really late, get rid of a problematic permanent and then just kill them with my thought not seers basically. Which is great, which is good too. It's just um, you know, it's expensive for what it for what it is. Yeah, so I agree with Dave in that I was almost always casting it late. But I'm with Zach that this card was great. I thought it was usually an overperformer. And whenever I was casting it, I was quite happy to cast it, either because it allowed me to deal with a problematic permanent, uh, or it would just let me start putting bodies on the battlefield that would then turn into cards. In a lot of ways, I think it could lead to like two, three, or four for ones just by itself. And it also made like a number of my spells just free. Mindstone, Liquid Metal Coating, Expedition Map, Relic of Progenitus, and some others, you just get to put them on the battlefield as if they're an egg. So I, I liked Ugin, though in general I agree that it can't be more than a one or two of, but that's just because this deck isn't great at accelerating into it. You kind of kind of have to either get lucky or just cast it like at a normal rate on turns five or six. Yeah, so moving on to something the deck is kind of good at accelerating into is the creatures of the deck. So while a six drop that with no cost reduction is hard to get into, a card like Mattery Shaper is easy to cast as early as turn two in this deck. And the card we're talking about, Mattery Shaper, is two and a colorless. It's a three two. When it dies, you reveal the top card of your library. So if it's a permanent with converted mana cost three or less, and that includes lands, you put it onto the battlefield. Otherwise, you draw it. So no matter what, when this creature dies, you are getting a card, either into play or into your hand. So a 3-2 for 3 mana, and with, like we mentioned earlier, our Drowsy Temple, as early as turn 2, you have a 3-2 that is generating virtual, not virtual, literal card advantage. What's the math on getting at least one Eldrazi Temple by turn 2? It's probably like, what, like, it's like 47%? Almost half of your games, if you have Matter Reshaper in your opening hand, you might be able to get it out on turn 2. And a 3-2 body that turns into cards later, like, I think that's great rate for Modern. I found myself being able to trade with creatures and then also get a Mindstone or a Tron Land. The best is when you get a Tron Land and it's the one you needed, and then post-combat you do some nonsense. I actually have a better best, I think, in some ways with this, which is just I, I had one sequence where I was playing against Mono Red Prowess. I don't remember which version of it was, that I went Matter Reshaper into Matter Reshaper. <laughs> then I drew another Matter Reshaper, and then that Matter Reshaper went into Matter Reshaper. So I went through all four... <laughs> <laughs> matter shapers in the first like four turns of a game and just kept blocking kept just blocking their uh monastery swift spirit over and over again and that, that was good enough for the win it's very good in situations like that where you're playing it early and you're able to stop an opponent's aggressive plan and then build up your mana base that we talked about with this deck it's very slow so that addition there being able to play your cards one or two turns faster is incredibly powerful 
So moving on in the suite, we have the four drop, Thought Not Seer. This is a card that I've played quite a bit in Blue Tron as well. Love this card. I love this card. Love this card. I mean, this card is key. Super key. <sighs> well, it's mostly a big I, actually. but So it's a 4-4 four, four for four mana, three and a colorless. When it enters the battlefield, uh, an opponent reveals their hand, and you choose a non-land card from it. They exile that card. So it's gone. It is exiled. Without Asir, leaves the battlefield. So not a dice trigger. Exile, this happens as well. Target opponent draws a card. So they're not getting the exile card back. And if it matters in a multiplayer game, you can make a different player draw a card. But it's mostly just that if they kill it or exile it or whatever, they get another card. But really important to note that exile card never comes back. Yeah, that's what's really important, I think, is that the card you take out of their hand is almost certainly better than the random card they're getting off the top because you're controlling that outcome. Uh, it's not like a kite sail freebooter where you know the card is sort of living underneath it, and once the you know you zap the freebooter, then you get the card that you wanted out of their hand. They get that back. Thought knots here just is a super powerful card because you're just taking them down a card you know they probably want. I think it's funny that this card can die to fatal push. Just because it's so powerful, <laughs> it's so menacing, but it's four mana. So just crack a fetch and problem solved. What's another thing I want to talk about this card is there's a rules detail. So once you cast the Thought Knots here and it has the ETB effect, the trigger goes on the stack. And if you remove Thought Knots here in response to that trigger, the trigger still exists. So what's going to happen in that is that the, you know, your opponent is going to draw that card. You get to look at all the cards after they draw and you choose to exile one of them. So this might be a good move against an opposing player if you like have a single removal spell that can deal with that thought not seer so that they can't take that removal spell from your hand. But otherwise, know that you're not doing anything magical. So this is the best card in the deck, right? I think so. Mm, I disagree. I also disagree. I think Stan might have the card to talk about that might be the best. Yeah, I... I'm so excited to talk about Reality Smasher because you have to understand, I've played red-blue decks like 95% of the time since I've played Modern, and they just have nothing to do with Reality Smasher. Like, preach, if you brother, want to preach. beat a red-blue deck, cast the Reality Smasher. They're just like, you're just, you're pooped. Double bolt, double scred. Feels bad. Then you got to discard two cards as well. So you're four wanting yourself for a card that is ostensibly not worth four wanting yourself for. I'm upset talking about it. Right. I, I want to read the rules text just so people are clear what Zach's referring to. Reality Smasher, four and a colorless, five, five, trample haste. So, wow. <laughs> when Smasher becomes the target of a spell an opponent controls, counter that spell unless its controller discards a card. So it's just an immediate two for one out the gate if it's even answered big body with evasion and almost always gets through some damage crazy hard to remove i feel that this was the deck's absolute strongest win condition and i would prioritize casting it as early as possible even over karn or ugin when i had to choose between those and now that's interesting to me yeah and honestly i think this card and 
TKS, like in second place, are the reasons to play this deck, and everything else are just like gravy that you get to play to make the package around these two creatures as good as possible. Now that I can definitely agree with that. I I, I was going to say that Reality Smasher was my number two compared to Thought Not Seer being my kind of number one, but they're very close, and they're clearly the reasons to play any deck in this space. The reason why I have this over Thought Not Seer is because. There were some situations where I felt like I was in control of the board state and I had a Thought Nazir out and like I would have to play Thought Nazir defensively because I just wouldn't want my opponent to get through their decks at all. And like I said, it's also a little easier to remove Thought Nazir. So that's why in the debate between those two cards, I feel like Reality Smasher is a step above. I mean, I don't really think that there's an objective winner here. I think these are the two creature pillars of the deck. Yeah. I mean, you have Thought Not Seared providing your disruption, blocking, attacking if you're in the position to do so, and you have Reality Smasher, you know, providing surprise, hasty damage, providing a gigantic body that they need to block, uh, you know, puts them down a card if they remove it. Absolutely. I do think there's a third creature that to me is an absolute pinnacle of this deck, and like I alluded to earlier, won me quite many a few games, and that is Walking Ballista. So, those unfamiliar, XX00. And there's Battlefield with X11 counters on it. So if you pay four mana, that is X equals two. So it comes to play with two counters on it. Activate ability, four, put a counter on it. And then remove a 1-1 one, one counter. It deals one damage to target creature or player. Or at this point, any target. It's just one damage to anything you want to deal it to. So this is scalable payoff with your Tron land. Sometimes you're casting this for six, doing a ton of damage. Usually you're running one or two main and one side. Just like I said, there'll be times where you could play a Karn, fetch this, and just ding your opponent when they're at four life. Love this card. Absolutely incredible. Just another random colorless payoff for playing this deck. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a finisher. It provides early disruption. It provides late mana sink and you know burn ability. It's just a it's a true necessary threat, and it's kind of what revived the deck you know, back in, what, 2017? Absolutely. And there are times where you cast it on two and kill a mana dork, and that is totally correct. Oh, yeah. Or like a champion of the parish or something. Right. And maybe to end our creature segment, we have the Endbringer. <laughs> Endbringer! <laughs> is, is that a worm tongue? <laughs> what potions do you have, Endbringer? Endbringer is a 5-5 five five for 5 and a colorless. And there are three activated abilities and a static ability. So, static ability. Untap Endbringer during each other player's untap step. First ability, tap. Endbringer deals one damage to a creature or player. Second ability, colorless and tap. Target creature can't attack or block this turn. Two colorless and tap. Final ability, draw a card. Wow, what a very good creature. What a lot of text. <laughs> so much text. What a perfect one of, though, let's be honest. Yeah, my thoughts exactly. I, I rarely got this thing going. I, I'm, I did a couple of times and it was great. I definitely sideboarded it out here and there. Like it's, it's a great card to have around. I would prefer to have extra walking ballistas over extra end bringers though, far and away. So although I didn't ever side it out, I don't think across like 10 matches or so, as much as I love this card and I do think it's like crazy good if you untap with it, I hate it that it didn't have haste. Like the fact that it's got all these crazy tap abilities and it untaps. Oh, you want to give it haste? Yeah, too? like I feel like this card just is begging for haste. 
Honestly, I thought the same thing, but then I realized that wouldn't be a real card, or it would cost eight. I mean, the fact that it untaps every turn is just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it has, you know, you can you can stop a, a creature from attacking, and then you get to use it on your turn. It's just, it's wild. So this card is so good. It gets you through your decks. It has all these utility abilities. I'm just curious, as a quick aside, why doesn't regular Tron run this? Like, it can play... Adrosi Temple. But also, like, you can play it on turn three, right? Yeah, I think... So I think that it's tempting, right? But w- the reason I think that regular Tron does not is because it's not really fitting in with its game plan. Because what Tron wants to do is cast gigantic things that provide kind of either immediate value or they provide some kind of redundancy, right? So like what Worm... Like, let's, let's look at what Worm Coil does for Tron. Is it provides... Um, a pain in the butt for decks with removal. I can even get rid of it besides Path to Exile. So it leaves... Well, okay, so it has Death Touch, it has Lifelink, so it stabilizes your life. It's It kills a important creature if they attack in with it. It leaves two bodies after the fact. So Eldrazi Tron has so many other creatures that are straining the opponent's removal that it can run it at kind of like this value late game card, whereas... Um, the creature suite in Tron is so meager that you're not putting that same stress on the removal package. So a better question to me, honestly, is why Eldrazi Tron's not wanting Worm Coil Engine. But I think like Dave mentioned, is that this is like the perfect one of. It just does so much once you have the game mostly locked down that it lets you take over the game. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I wonder if there's also just, you're more frequently going to be able to ramp into it than you can ramp into Worm Coil in this particular deck. Right, because you're more likely to draw one of Temple than you are to get make Tron, basically. That's a good point. So we're going to dive into these non-creature spells. We're going to attack these at a little bit of a higher pace because a lot of these you've seen elsewhere. So we have Dismember. Um, you know, removal in this deck, like Dave said, is pretty weak. You have to run Dismember because it lets you kind of do you know remove whatever you need with it, and it has Phyrexian mana, so you can pay that with your life instead of black mana. Um, I think that you're just going to see a few copies in the deck. It depends on, you know, if creature decks are more popular and providing more threats to you. We have All is Dust, a seven mana tribal sorcery Eldrazi. We mentioned that earlier. Each player sacrifices all colored permanents they control, typically a one to two of. Super swingy card. It can either be one of the best cards in some matchups or kind of do stone nothing in others. And really, seven mana still isn't dirt cheap in Eldrazi Tron. You know, it's going to be good against your mid range and aggressive creature decks, maybe even some control decks, but, you know, it's not going to do anything against Affinity, nothing against Tron, probably bad against like Mono Red Prowess decks. It's just too slow. Chalice of the Void, you know, we had a whole episode about this. What? Um, Where? When? (laughs) Episode 16. (laughs) Was I there? Thanks, Dave. So, um, you know, I'll read this one in case you're not ultimately intimately familiar. XX Chalice of the Void ETBs with X charge counters on it. So if you cast it for two mana, you get a, a single counter on it. And what it does is it sits there and counters every spell that is cast with that CMC. So this is definitely a four of main. It shuts down, a, a, you know, large portions of entire deck strategies just all by itself. I do want to point out the tech real quick. That if you really, really want it against some decks and keep in Karn, it might be worth putting one in your sideboard to then bring it in and put it on one. That's a little more fringe and something that I would only do perhaps if I had cards to bring in against Burn or et cetera. I don't want to give too many examples. It's really a case-by-case basis and depending if you're on the play or the draw. But it's worth noting that if you really do need it and have more 
and also want to play Karn, that it can be worth Karn wishing for Chalice and putting in a one or two. I was going to say, yeah, that's just against decks where you have time. That's But that's a, a smart thing to do sometimes for sure. Yeah, one of the cards I think we should spend a little bit of time on is Expedition Map. I mean, most people know what it does. You know, you pay two mana, you sacrifice this one mana artifact, you get any land out of your deck and put it into your hand. Any land? Any land. I did this so bad during the leagues that I played. <laughs> Somehow, I mean, I don't know if we're going to talk about results. I did two leagues. Somehow I went seven and three. I literally have no idea how I how I did that with this deck because I feel like I pl- misplayed so many of the cards and Expedition Map is the big one. Yeah, it's 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 hard compared to regular Tron because regular Tron, you know, you want to make Tron, and sometimes at late game you're going to pull up like a interesting tech land, like a Blast Zone or a Sanctum of Ugin. But in this, you kind of have to look at what's happening in front of you. Do I want another, uh, you know, Eldrazi Temple to ramp up my Eldrazi spells? Do I need a Blast Zone right now so I can pump it up later over turns? Do I want something to you know remove their lands? There's so many options in the deck in terms of the colorless utility lands that you have to think about what your goal is, You know, even if you want to use it right away. Like maybe it just sits on the battlefield and you use it when you need it. Like one of the things that I think you should be doing in this deck is waiting to see if you draw other Tron pieces. And then you could crack it and make Tron. You don't need to go seek out a second Tron piece because you're not going to just randomly ramp with it. It's more important to use it for the needed land. Totally agreed. I literally kept sitting there just looking at it going, well, I'm not trying to make Tron right now, so I'm just not going to use this. This card is dead. And that's just so like so short-sighted. So don't get caught. This is one of those things that I think is one of my weaknesses as a player sometimes is I like stick to the heuristic of what I think a card is for from one deck to another, one situation to another, and don't sometimes take the time to go, oh, this is a new situation. Let me reappraise what this card can do in this new situation. And Expedition Map is the big symbol of that in this particular deck. It's got so much more utility in this deck than it did in Mono Green Tron. Super important in Mono Green Tron, but there's a lot more options in this one. Zach, tell us about Mindstone, one of your favorite cards, and something I've never cast before playing this deck. <laughs> it's a, I own four foil Friday Night Magic promos of this card to tell you how committed I am to this semi-playable. So anyway, Mindstone is a two-mana rock in that it taps for other mana. So it's two mana, can tap to make a colorless, or you can pay one mana of any color, tap and sack it. So it can't pay for itself to sack itself. Draw a card. So what this does ideally is you're playing this on turn two to have a four drop on turn three, whether that be Karn Great Creator, Thought Not Seer, or sometimes even with Eldrazi Temple, a Reality Smasher. So what this is, is an early game way to ramp and then late game a way to cash in and draw cards. So like I mentioned earlier, it allows you to cast card the spells through Blood Moon. It really just fits a lot of roles in this deck, and I was very happy to see it. And there's ways, like we mentioned with Ugin, where you're playing them for free and there's cracking them to draw cards. Yeah, that's awesome. I haven't cast one of these since 1998, probably. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> so it was pretty sweet to, to get to play with it again. Did any of you play with Mystic Forge in your testing? No, but I've seen it quite a bit, and it has played a lot in Legacy. Yeah. This card is so cool. It's restricted it's, in Vintage now, everybody. Yes, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a <laughs> so is Karn. Four mana artifact, right? 
So you can look at the top card of your library anytime. You can cast it if it's an artifact card or a colorless non-land card. You can also tap and pay a life and exile the top card of your library. So this is new in Corset 20. It's not always included. It's super powerful though. It's um it's awesome against mid-range control, provides an edge in the mirror, but it's gonna stink against fast decks. Why do you think they took a look at Experimental Frenzy and said, we need to make another one of these, but for colorless cards that lets you keep drawing <laughs> cards or lets you keep playing from what your hand What if Experimental Frenzy, but yeah. better? Weird. weird. It's really odd. Because it, it's only good because of its deck building restriction. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Because you can play Frenzy in almost any strategy and this, you can only play it in certain strategies. Well, Frenzy in any red strategy. Yeah. I just think this is one of those cards that like seems like, boy, oh boy. I, I thought when I saw it spoiled that it was going to make some big waves, and I, I don't think it's there quite yet, but it's like someday. Someday I think this card is going to be totally yeah. broken. I mean, the format did slow down with the BNR announcement, so Allegedly. I would not be surprised. I would not uh, be surprised to see that, Mystic that Forge. That for Bacon and Rutabaga, by the way, listeners. I think Mystic Forge is going to have a little bit more game. I don't know if it's exactly always main deckable, just because it's so bad against fast opponents, but who knows? So moving on to the sideboard, we already talked about this a little bit with the inclusion of the wish board with Karn the Great Creator in that you're dedicating a certain part of your slots to one-ofs that you're ideally tutoring out with Karn. So cards that aren't in the wish board are things like Special Contortion, which is one in a colorless, tar creature gets plus three, minus three. Such a good so this card. Is, this is usually just used as removal. I have gotten in there with using this in a Thought Not Seer and killing a creature that they thought would not trade, and that's very fun and cool. But that is a rare thing, usually using it on a creature, even that situation, but there are utilities for it. Yeah, your creatures have such large toughness that you can just pump them up, and you can, exactly. you can really surprise people like or get that needed damage in at the end. So you also run Dismember. Like we mentioned, that's main board as well. There is not a way to make black mana in this deck currently, so this is always one mana and four life. It is good, though, and minus five, minus five will get you there. Mm -hmm. You're running things like Relic of Regenitus and Tormod's Crypt, but those are typically part of the Karn package. Sometimes decks will run two or three relics, mm -hmm. so you can bring some in and still have Karn targets. You're running Ratchet Bomb, which is a whole big deal. Two mana, tap, put a counter on it, and then you can tap sack to do a blast zone or uh, engineer explosions effect. Zach, do you think that this is because, you know, let's say a token based strategy becomes more popular or, you know, you're playing against storm. You want a way to deal with tokens, which blast zone can't do. Yeah. And you also can't run, like we mentioned, uh, engineer explosives because you can't make other colors. Oh yeah. So I think you would want to run that typically as it, it can, you know, be, uh, use right away where Retrobomb typically takes a few turns to build up, but you don't get that luxury because you're all in the colorless plan. You're also running in with the list we played, Leyland of the Void. We can have a discussion <laughs> some other time about how many of these you cut, how many of these you run. I know that some of us have different opinions on this, That's but I do not think out. I do not think four of is the number. Yeah, anymore. I personally think zero of is the number moving forward, but time will tell. Well, we will talk about this later. And I don't, I don't agree, and I'm so cheating. We'll give it a couple of weeks and see what see how it shakes out. So, like we mentioned, there are some wishboard cards. We went into Microsynth Latest earlier. Microsynth Latest is the most popular or most powerful, impactful card. Yeah, the most game winningest card you can you can uh, bring up with Karn. So it's six mana artifact. 
All permanents are artifacts in addition to their other types. All cards that are on the battlefield, spells and permanents, are colorless. And then the added note, players may spend mana as though or mana of any color, not relevant. What this does with Karn is lock your opponent out of playing anything. They can still attack with creatures, which is where ensnaring bridge is important. Yeah, the important thing here is that your opponent can't activate any abilities of their permanents, including lands. Right. So you, if you get this lock out, they can't play things. If they have critters in play already, those can still attack. So it's not always smart to play Karn minus and play Latus, even if you can, because if they kill Karn next turn, you have Latus out there and you look kind of dumb. Yeah, it doesn't do anything. 100%. So ideally, what you're grabbing with Karn first before you get the Latus lockdown is Ensnaring Bridge, which we talked about in this podcast before, one of my favorite magic cards. Three mana artifact, creatures with power greater than the number of cards in your hand can't attack. A modern staple, but in a deck like this, it's hard to dump your hand because of the mana curve and because of the ramping. So it's not like Mono Red Prison where you're just putting this out there and going, this game's slow now, We're like, what are we going to do about it? There are times where you can, you know, even play Karn on turn three, ramp for this and play it. You still got four cards in hand or three cards in hand, and your opponent can still get through with their little guys. Yeah, I had that happen more than once. It was frustrating. Absolutely. You're running things also like Liquid Metal Coating, which is a two-mana artifact. Tap, target permanent becomes an artifact in addition to its types until end of turn. So if you're combining this with Karn's plus ability, you can start blowing up zero-cost cards, like lands, for instance. It also is good if you want to stop in your opponent's upkeep, and you can make cards of theirs unusable, like Planeswalkers or lands, where you tap, make it an artifact, and then due to Karn's static ability, they can't be activated. You got Sorcerer's Spyglass as well, which we mentioned is a Pithing Needle effect. So two mana, when you play that, you look at opponent's hands, then you name a card, and then activate the that cards can't be activated. So you're bringing that in reverse walkers, walking ballistas, other things like that, that you're trying to stop your opponent from going off before you. Very important to note, you do not have to name a card that you see in the opponent's hand. Sometimes the cards in their hand is just extra information, and you're going to still name something that you know is in their deck. Good point. Absolutely. Good point. Good reminder. As I mentioned earlier, you're running a one of walking ballista as that Karn target, because there are times when the game is so close and you need to finish it, and walking ballista will get there. Sometimes you're running Worm Coil Engine. I ran that and I loved it. It's really good against decks like Mono Red Prowess, where you really need to stall out the game and then sort of dig in deep and then launch out after you've gained a bunch of life or or really got there. Also worth noting, Jund doesn't have a clean answer to this most of the time. They're going to need to play two cards to get rid of it in general because they can Assassin's Trophy, but then you got the tokens, and then best case scenario is Malstrom Pulse, and they paid five mana to get rid of your six mana card that you probably didn't pay six mana for, quote-unquote. In general, it's a very good card. I'm a very big fan of it. And then finally, Basilisk Caller. One mana equipment, two to equip. Equip creature has Death Touch and Lifelink. And that always included, it can be good on a Walking Ballista to be able to remove a counter and kill a card right away. Also good on Endbringer in that you can each turn tap to kill a creature. This one's a little, a little more fringe, but I do think that it might be a card to look into for the future. So everybody, wishboards, they're good. I love them, run them. When you see a shooting star, remember Karn, the great creator. Now that we've gotten through all of this, I mean, do you really feel like each of the plants, like we uh, kind of implied at the beginning, are the four plants kind of co-equal? Do you think there's one that kind of leads as far as which way you should be going uh, with, with sculpting the way that you want your game to go? is uh they're probably each better against different kind of decks i mean what do you what do you think at the end of the kind of the assessment of everything yeah i think that's a good question dave i mean for me at least 
I feel like what you're looking to do is kind of capitalize on mana ramp, whether that's you know magically having some ability to create Tron or getting Eldrazi temples into play. So that's kind of like, I think the primary focus is like the Tron-ish mana ramp sort of focus. And then Chalice of the Void to me felt like added value, where it's like you don't, I mean, some draws when you know, against a known opponent, you're going to be looking for those chalices. But broadly, in terms of like t- game one, Chalice was like, okay, I have the flexibility, like Zach said, I could eventually even play a Chalice on two if it's like a mid-range opponent, right? So I don't know. I, I think the way that you win this game is pretty flexible. Against some opponents, they might go wide enough where you need to get that you know, Karn down, get Bridge down, and then finish them off with like a Microsoft Lattice. Uh, against some opponents, you can overwhelm their removal and their lack of creatures by getting your big beefers down pretty fast. So I think that it it is you know a kit of parts. Yeah, you know, when we talk about mid-range decks, one of the things that we identify as you know powerful in those strategies is that they can play either a more controlling plan or sometimes play a more aggressive plan. And I think Etron does that like in every game, and it's really determined based on what you see in your opening hand in like the first few turns. Um, so even though I personally felt like the Eldrazi creatures were your plan A, I think that's because they lead to your most aggressive and quick wins. But when the game goes long, like sometimes the board is stalled. You're maybe you or your opponent have a bridge down, and at that point, like Karn is your way to kind of sneak out of a grindy matchup. So what are you guys looking to keep with your hands, right? Like, let's say, you know, you know, broadly, we know what we're doing game one, right? You want to have some ramp, you want to have some creatures, maybe some chalice. What are you thinking about against like aggro decks, control decks, mid-range decks? Let's, let's, let's think about, you know, that kind of strategy. Because I don't think I had it, you know, locked in after my testing. For aggro decks, I'm looking for removal or chalice. And if, especially if I know they're on burn or a zoo or some sort of prowess deck, I need chalice or I need removal or I have to ship the hand back. And of course you get to a point where you're not going to go to three, but you need early game interaction because this deck is not very fast. And you can't have those hands where we talked about, you know, turn two thought not seer. That is real. And I would also look for that if possible, but you need to look for a strategy where you're doing something quick that is stopping them or delaying them. I think that makes sense. So when you say removal, are you talking about like your sideboarded, um, man, what's that card? It's escaping my brain. Spatial contortion. Spatial contortion. Yes. Thank you. Um, so, but are you like, what do you, what do you think about this member? So I brought in this member versus mono red prowess and was iffy about it, but it got me there. And like, there were times where they would pump up their monster suspect to a three, four. And even though I was taking quote unquote, one more life, not having to worry about that in the future is that good. And I feel like it's easy to get yourself in the trap of thinking, well, I'm taking one more damage and it's not worth it and like, et cetera. But taking that creature off the board is worth that cost of life, hands down. And also the lands here aren't hurting you, right? You're not running fetches, you're not running shocks. So a lot of decks in modern are doing sometimes upwards of four damage to themselves just because they're mana base. And I think since you don't have that going on in this strategy, dismember isn't quite as taxing as if you know you were in a different shell entirely. Yeah, I actually found this deck to be really good against aggro decks, mostly because of chalice and dismember and spatial contortion to be able to just have those available. Um, you know, I had three wins against mono red prowess in the in the leagues that I did. Hey, same. You did too. Boy, there was a lot of it yeah. floating around. 
I definitely even felt like I could win through Blood Moon because I could disrupt their plan early, then they would Blood Moon me, then I would have some time left to kind of get myself back up and running, and then I could go back at it, and they couldn't catch up again. So, And the creature's good at blocking. Oh, yeah. I mean, even... Not even uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even the three-two uh, matter reshaper, you know, he re- it replaces itself, and also, you know, three is a good amount of uh, power to have, more or less. What about mid-range decks? Like I, I mentioned before, I think Chalice on two can be powerful if you have the time to get there, um, which frequently you do because they're operating at a slower speed. As the Scrid Man, which is a mid-range deck, Reality Smasher just wrecks those decks. They have to. Ideally, if they have clean spot removal, which is Path to Exile or something along those lines, they are ramping you and discarding a card. So it's just, it's to remove Reality Smasher is usually such a tempo swing that if you can capitalize on it, it feels like you are in part rewarded for having them kill your creature. Yeah, no doubt. Although you do need to maybe be aware of something like a Liliana Edict effect. And one of the reasons I like this deck is that it's not super narrow. You know, the, the creatures are tall and it doesn't go terribly wide, but it's not like unlikely for you to have at least two creatures out on the board but if you're going all in on smasher or all in on thought not seer uh, especially something like jund or any other black deck that have lilies sometimes that edict can set you back quite a bit i also think it's interesting to note that chalice on two is pretty good in this situation and this deck gets to cast chalice on two where a lot of decks that run chalice or some decks that run chalice don't because they have two drops and this deck does not really have two drops, not that many of them anyway. And so yeah, worth noting. So you get you get a chance to keep going and have that disruption go up the chain. Uh, but mostly it's on one or two, and two is pretty good against a deck that's running Assassin's Trophy, for example. Exactly. Mono Red Prison runs the rituals and a braid, which are both very important and you yeah. can't take yourself off of. So against control decks, I thought an early chalice, like on one, is still usually pretty good. A chalice on two doesn't do quite as much work but this is when a ramped reality smasher can do quite a bit of work uh, to maybe pick out a removal spell or a counter spell if you don't have cavern out but likewise this is one of the few matchups where i was using my map to find caverns uh it's really important here mm-hmm. yeah you want to get that clock down you're gonna get those creatures down yeah and i also want to say that this was a matchup where I felt like I mulliganed the least aggressively because the games go so long that as long as I had like halfway decent lands and castable creatures or castable spells, like almost anything was fine. You just had to know what to look for or maybe what to fetch with your maps. One category of decks we didn't talk about here. Um, I had a loss to War- to Warza. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about what might be a good way to sideboard against that deck. Now, I I did bring in Leyline of the Void just to try to keep them off the infinite combo, which I don't know if that was right or not. I barely I've barely played against against Warzub, so. Uh, in general, I think that things like Torborb are good risk combo. A lot of them are relying on creatures entering the battlefield. For instance, Warza is Thopter Foundry and the Sword combo rely on an ETB effect. Also, Chalice, usually very good versus those decks as they are running things that cost zero or one. So I think if you know you're playing against combo, you need to prioritize getting your disruption as fast as possible and to know what that disruption is. And think about things where, is it better to bring in Torpor Orb and Mulligan to it as opposed to grabbing it with Karn? Every combo deck is different. I can't give a one-size-fits-all statement, but you need to know what your out is and aggressively go for it because they are a little more honed in on their strategy than you are. So you have to have a way to stop them before they do what they are trying to do. Were you running Torpor Orb in your side? Oh, you better believe I was. 
Yeah, I was definitely not. So let's talk about briefly how we're going to beat e-tron if we're seeing it on the other side of the table, right? So we could, of course, you can tweak your 75, pick it, pick the deck that's going to be good against it if your store is overrun with it. Um, I think one thing you can do is probably go wide. So, you know, humans, elves, dredge, affinity, hardened scales, those are effective. Absolutely. The only super the deck has is seven mana. And best case scenario, it's what, turn four with a couple of drowsy temples? And even then, that's iffy. So I think really going wide, you're rarely punished and you're often rewarded. Uh, in my 10 games, I played against this new Bant Flicker strategy three times, and I lost every time Oof. Uh, because it's another go wide deck. A lot of two drops, getting your chalice on two can be somewhat challenging at times. So just a random shout out, Bant Flicker, great tool against Etron. Yeah, I, I lost because they kept recurring Disdainful Stroke against me. Uh-huh. Ewit will do that. Another way to beat Etron is to go very fast. Uh, burn, mono red, prowess, affinity, infect. Those can all go fast enough to where the Tron player is just barely able to get a thought not seer. And then when you take a bolt with that, or they cast a bolt in response and they're handless, that doesn't feel very good. So there are ways where they can get a chalice down or they can get a thought not seer, but those are more rare than not. So if you are able to go fast, you're more likely able to punish them for that. That said, I think these are decks that really need to go fast and get under Tron because Chalice on one can be such a house against these strategies that we named. But at the same time, I really like a braid against Chalice when I'm playing against Etron, since, as I said, Etron can have a hard time getting Chalice on two, and it's probably not doing that against these super aggressive strategies. I mean, unlike any Tron deck, you can play Land Hate against it. So, you know, your Blood Moons can help, your Ghost Quarters, your Stone Rain effects, that can shut off kind of key lands. So you take them off their temples, take them off their, you know, their Urza if they have it completed, take them off Cavern. Yeah, we mentioned that the deck does have outs to that. There is Mind Stone and there is the ability to have Exhibition Map. But in general, it is good. And with all these strategies, it's not going to beat them automatically, but it forces them to shift a plan. And if they're not ready for that hate, it might be too late or too hard for them to shift into their other plan. And the last one that Dave kind of alluded to is Combo. This deck doesn't have a lot of great tools against it. Chalice might do some work against Storm. Maybe a Chalice on Zero could do a little bit of work against Sramos. But sometimes if... Or Wurza, for that matter, yeah. But if Etron doesn't find the exact right interaction at the right time, I think Combo just gets around their whole plan and doesn't really even care what they're doing. Well, y'all, we did it again. Nearly two hours of content about a single deck in Modern. <laughs> yeah, we have to find a way to be a little bit more concise. But we're just so excited not only to talk with one another, but just to go so deep in these strategies. They have all these cool cards. I want to talk about all the cards. I held my breath. I dived to the 12-foot end of the pool. I jumped around at the end. I'm back here, fully awake. So, so quickly, what do you guys think? Is this a deck you'd, you'd play again? You'd you'd rent on on a rental service. You'd jump in the leagues and and run through. Not even a question. I love this deck so much. A friend of mine described it as scred, but better. And I think that what they mean is just probably the best mid range deck that is not Jund. And I think it's kind of up there with Jund in terms of mid range power. I love this deck. I would play it again. Once again, five O baby. Love this deck. Coming to, soon to a Dice Dojo near you. I had pretty good results. Like I said, I went. I had a 4-1. I lost a Wurza for my fifth win for getting a trophy myself. I have no idea how I did it. I think if I was to play this again, I'd have to commit to practice a lot. So I might be moving on to something else, but um, it's definitely a powerful deck. I think we'll still see it going forward. I liked it, but I didn't love it. And if I'm going to try big mana strategies or mid-range strategies, I will personally look elsewhere. 
I think I generally prefer Mono Green Tron's plan, and I think that deck is a little bit more fun for what I like doing in Modern. But I had decent results too, and I really like how important sequencing is in a strategy like this. And this is the type of deck that I can see really rewarding the players who commit to it and figure out how to tune their sideboards, how to tune their 75s, and attack a meta. Yeah, so I, I liked it fine. I thought it felt like it was pulling at different strategic aspects that I I felt weren't always in, you know, acting in concerts with one another. Um, you know, Dave's reflected on this a number of times. I think we all have. Uh, I liked, you know, I love locking people out with Karn. Who doesn't? But um, I think that, and I love casting gigantic, powerful creatures. Who doesn't? I like disrupting people with Chalice of the Void. Who doesn't? Um, and I think if I think it's perfectly fun. I think that it rewards experience. I think that for me, I didn't. I was like, I played it, and I was like, man, how could someone nine zero with this deck, right? And apparently, people do it frequently. And so I think it, you know, like any deck, get some reps in, enjoy it, uh, understand your role in the matchup, understand what cards are important, understand what lands are important, and you can get a lot of value out of it. I don't think it loses a lot of power, even with the banning of Faithless Looting. And in fact, I think that takes some really fast matchups potentially out of the game. I think that this deck's not going anywhere anytime soon. And people look for reasons to play it rather than look for reasons to stop. So there you have it, folks. That's how we all felt about Etron. Let us know what you think about this deck. Shoot us a tweet, email, comment on Reddit. Let us know if you think we missed any obvious plays, interactions, rules, nuances that people should be aware of. We're open to sharing that as well with our listeners moving forward. But we got to wrap it up. So if you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast and get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to a future episode of The Dive Down or pick our brain on anything in modern, you can tweet us at The Dive Down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash thedivedown. And joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel. Giving us just a couple bucks a month will give you some pins, some signed dive down cards. Some of these pins are super retro and don't make any sense because Faithless Looting isn't in the format anymore. But you can smirk when people ask, what's that about? (laughs) Oh, the dive down, you don't know? I was referring to a different card that started with the word Faithless, by the way. Yeah, our favorite band, the Faithless. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and visit Blind Eternity! You know what I love about this card? It's got tiny little legs. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Darn it, Zach. I was going to say that right then. Sniped. Oh, man. Content sniped. We call that a no-scope in the business. (laughs) 360 no-scoped.